There is nothing like being in here together, worshiping God. This is what builds community when we're together. We may not be face to face. We may have our backs to some, but, but to be able to lift our voices in unison together. And, and I just tell you, some of those songs we just sang are, are unbelievable when you think about it. I, 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 uh, an old Charles Wesley hymn that we sang, And Can It Be, that song, that hymn, never gets old. I mean, as a matter of fact, I'm sitting here thinking as we're singing it, that's really a pretty good intro and summary of our journey that we're about to enter into in the book of Romans. Uh, At the top of the, if you have a Baptist hymnal, which you don't have in front of you, but I, I, I bought one from my iPad just so I wouldn't have to go steal it off the piano every time I needed it. But, but, you know, at the, at the top of that, it says it has the verse under the title, and can it be, of Romans 5, 8, which says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on and gives this beautiful exposition, if you will, musically and lyrically of what I believe is the gospel, uh, is the gospel that Paul is preaching in the book of Romans. He talks about, you know, and can it be that I should gain in, in the Savior's blood? I, I can just almost see Charles Wesley sitting at his desk writing this hymn and saying, this just doesn't make sense. I am such a sinner. I know what Romans says. I am, I am such a sinner. I am so different from God. And can it be? Can I really gain from my Savior's death who died for me when I caused him so much pain? I hadn't planned to ex- exposit this hymn, but I'm going to do a little bit of it here for a minute before we get into the text of Romans. And, you know, he left his father's throne above. That's good. But I love that third verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. In the first three chapters of Romans, as we move through that over the next year or so, those first three chapters, uh, we will uh, we'll see the depth of that sin. And, and you, can, you can hear, you, you can hear Wesley saying, Man, I was bound, in, imprisoned, enslaved in, in sin and nature's night. But that, that may not sound like a phrase you would use, but he's talking about that. In my natural state, I was in darkness. Oh, that's good. You're good. Back in the back. I didn't even ask him to do that. Then he said, your eye diffused a quickening ray. The spirit moved. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. I was laying there, Wesley said, in death, in slavery, in darkest night, and the eye of God, the Spirit of God, diffused a, a, a ray of light. A quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke from my death. The dungeon filled with light, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My slavery was ended by the work of God through the Holy Spirit. My heart was set free from the slavery of sin. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
And if you want to say you, you can say that there. No magic in the word thee. And then the, that fourth verse, we'll, we'll get to the fourth verse in Romans chapter 8. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Wesley says, no condemnation now I dread. I'm not fearful anymore. I'm, I'm set free. I'm, the, the slavery's broken. The death is ended. And I'm now alive in Christ. Man, I tell you what, that's Romans. And we're going to take a journey through this book. Now, nothing makes me happier than to know that you people listen to me and hear what I say. And I've had several people come up to me this morning and say, did I not hear you say when you preached on a passage out of Romans a couple of years ago? I can't even remember what I said a couple of years ago. But did I not remember you saying a couple of years ago that your last series as pastor before you retired was going to be Romans? I think I said that jokingly, but maybe it's true. Because when we get into Romans, we're, we're going to be here a while, and we'll have a few breaks here and there for various things, but, but I think about some of my heroes in the faith, some people I really look up to. I think about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who went to be the Lord in, in, uh, in 1981, uh, who was pastor of the great Westminster Chapel in London, England. Uh, Lloyd-Jones went in depth on Friday nights in Romans. It took him 15 years every Friday night to preach through Romans. Let's see, 15 years, I'll be 81. Uh, I don't think, is that right? I don't think that's going to take 15 years. But James Montgomery Boyce at the great uh, 10th Pres in, in Philadelphia, who was one of my heroes of faith, who the, the Lord took home what we would call prematurely through cancer some years ago, preached through Romans, and, and he took 10 years to do it. And in 10 years, he... Uh, he covered a lot, so much so that he put out four volumes of commentaries on it just based on his sermons. Even John Piper, who I respect very greatly, who's still alive, and I don't usually call a, an alive person my hero, but even John Piper speak, uh, preached eight and a half years through the book of Romans. The last time I finished the book of Romans in an expositional series was in uh, First Baptist Sweetwater in Orlando, Florida back uh, several years ago many years ago now, it seems like, and it took me four years to cover the book of Romans, and I did it, I even, I even confessed at the end of it, I did it kind of shallowly at places. Like in Romans chapter 9, I preached two sermons. I think Lloyd-Jones has an entire volume this thick on just Romans chapter 9. Just one chapter, a whole book. Won't go that deep probably, because I'm not nearly the man or the expositor that Lloyd-Jones was, but but what I'm saying is here, and just by way of joking, this is no announcement today, okay? There, there's no news to be had. Nothing to see here. Move on. And move on with me through Romans. Because Romans, to me, is one of the most exciting books in the entire Bible. Now, it's true that every book in the Bible is exciting in its own light, in its own right. But there's something about the book of Romans that just sort of lays out, I believe, the totality of the gospel. I think, I think Paul is writing to a church uh, who he's never seen. 
Uh, all the other epistles that he writes pretty much are churches that he has had a personal contact with. He's, he's been with them. He started them. He planted them or something. And so he usually starts out by his, uh, his opening his epistle by saying, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then just goes right into greeting them. Okay? Paul gives a rather lengthy introduction here in, in ver, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. And I want you to read that, and I want you to realize this is not the only sermon on these first seven verses we're going to have. We're going to have several on these first seven verses because the meat of Paul's introduction to the gospel is here. As a matter of fact, I think that's part of what he's writing Romans for. He, he's, he knows this church is one that he's not been able to teach personally. He knows this church is one that he's not been able to, to have a, a contact with face-to-face. And so he wants to be certain that he lays out the clarity with clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that he was given. The gospel that was delivered unto him, he said, to the, to the Corinthian Christians, and, and, and it was of first, first importance. And so what Paul is laying out here is the essence of the gospel. Martin Luther, the reformer that we're celebrating this 500th year, this year of his nailing the 95 Theses of the Wittenberg door, chapel door, Martin Luther said this of this epistle. He said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. Some people have even written books, you know, and, and uh, commentaries on, on Romans. And, and they'll write a commentary on Matthew and say the gospel according to Matthew. And they'll write John, uh, John the gospel according to John. And they write a commentary on, on, on Romans sometimes. And some will even entitle it the gospel according to Paul. Because this is his clearest and his purest expression. Luther went on to say, it is not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that it should, he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I like that expression. That we ought to occupy ourselves with the book of Romans. We ought to read it every day. We ought to let it be the daily bread of our soul. We, ought to, we can never ponder it too much. And so we're going to ponder it a lot over the next several years. Luther finalized that opening to his commentary on Romans, his lectures on Romans by saying this, the chief purpose of this letter, now hear this, because this is, this is what I want you to see over the next however long God keeps us in Romans. The chief purpose of this letter is to break down, pluck up, and to destroy all wisdom and righteousness of the flesh. Wow. Let that, just let that marinate a minute in your mind and in your soul. The, the purpose, the chief purpose of the book of Romans is to break down, pluck up, and destroy all wisdom and righteousness of the flesh. In other words, to show us where we're trusting ourselves, we're feeling good about ourselves, we're thinking we're righteous in ourselves and we're good enough for God, Luther says Paul wants to to destroy that in your life. He wants to take it away. And he wants you to see it replaced by what is the greatness of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. 
the righteousness that we sang about this morning that we are clothed in when we are, when we are in Christ. The, the work of God opening our eyes, diffusing the light, calling us forth, seeing the chains drop off, and going forth and following Christ because of His great work in our life. This book is literally Paul's manifesto of the Christian life. And it remains for us in 2017 and beyond a timeless manifesto, a manifesto of freedom that is found through Jesus Christ. Freedom that leads us to dread no condemnation. Frees us to not be proud in our Christianity, but be humbled in the work of God in our life and humbled by the fact that He has done a work that releases our condemnation. It's the fullest, the plainest, and the grandest statement of the gospel that you will find anywhere in the New Testament or elsewhere. It's, it's, it's showing how men, human beings, men and women are born into slavery, born into sin, but that Jesus Christ came to set us free. What a glorious truth. What a glorious thought. The church in every generation has acknowledged the importance of Romans. As a matter of fact, most of the great awakenings, most of the great revivals that have taken place in the church across the, the, the centuries, across the, all time, have found at least at some point their anchor in the book of Romans. The Reformation did when Luther came to that uh, 16 and 17 verses in, in in chapter 1, that, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation unto the Jew first and then to the Greek. It is the righteousness of God that is revealed. And when we see His righteousness and have it imputed to us, it changes everything. And so we come to think about this righteousness. We come to think about this glorious truth. We come to think about this gospel that Paul wants us to see. Calvin similarly wrote, as Luther did, declaring that if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, if we gain a true understanding of the book of Romans, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. And with that I agree. The book of Romans is, in some cases, not an easy book. Someone told me one time uh, when I was preaching through Romans, he said, you know, i got to be honest with you, in these first three chapters, it makes me mad sometimes. I said, okay. Why? Because it shows me my sin, and I don't like that. So I've come to believe that one of two things will happen as we study Romans. You'll either get really mad about it, or you'll really fall on your face before God, humbly praising Him because of the work he's done. There's a lot of ways to outline this book. A lot of people say you've got the first 11 chapters, which are doctrine, which he's, out, which he's laying out the absolute facts and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you've got the last chapters, uh, 12 through 16, that give you the practical application of the first 11 chapters. And there's a lot of truth to that. But don't think there's not a lot of practical application in the first 11 chapters. 
But, but a good way of looking at this, I think, to, to uh, and I could preach it, I guess, in a four-part series and just be done, but, but verses 118 through 320 talk about the wrath of God. And, and in talking about the wrath of God, he's talking about toward, the, toward sin that is a result of the fall. Paul, Paul will take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve, which, yes, I believe is a literal Adam and Eve and a literal fall. He'll take us all the way back to that, and he'll say, listen, I want you to understand that, that the wrath of God is poured out because of that sin and because of the sin that followed it as we inherited the sin nature of our first parents. So verse, chapter 1, verse 18 through 320 talks about the wrath of God. Chapter 321, you'll be more happy when we get there. But hang in there with me. Don't, don't stay, I'm going to stay out until I can call in and find out when you get to 321. Don't do that. 321 through 3, uh, 839 talks about the grace of God. And oh, how beautiful Paul expounds it. The grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ, his son. And then the third part is laying out the plan of God. In, in chapters 9 through 11. And, and those arguably are the most difficult chapters in the book, perhaps the most difficult chapters in the, uh, in the New Testament, or maybe in the whole Bible, because you, people ask all sorts of questions. Here are the questions Paul is being asked and that he is answering when we get there, and we talk about the plan of God in, in redeeming a people for himself and for his glory. And then finally, verses 12 through 15, 13, Paul will talk about the will of God. The practical outworking of what he's been talking about all through those first 11 chapters. The hard stuff, the difficult stuff, the deep stuff. He'll say, boy, it, it changes how you live. It changes how you ministry, minister. It changes how you do community. He'll talk about all of that in those last chapters. But we won't talk about that for a long, long time. Okay? So bear with me. Turn with me, if you will to the first chapter, the first verse of Paul's epistle, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who, who, is, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his introduction. He, the, the ancient custom of writing letters is different from our own. If I write you a letter tomorrow, I'll say, dear Tom or dear whoever, and I'll, I'll write you the body of the letter. And when I get through with it, 
Even if it's multiple pages long, I'll get to the end of the letter and I'll say sincerely or by his grace and for his glory or solideo glory or something. I'll, I'll sign a salutation and I will say, Pastor Bill. And, and theoretically, you've got to read the whole letter before you know who it's coming from, right? Or, or either you have to go to the back and say, who wrote me this letter? And you look at it. Well, well the, the custom in Paul's day and the custom he follows in all his letters, he identifies himself immediately at the front. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I'll never forget sitting in class in New Testament, studying the book of Romans, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, in 1977, I believe it was, maybe it was 78, but centuries ago. I was sitting in, in class with Dr. Curtis Vaughn, who I believe is one of the greatest New Testament professors Southern Baptists have ever produced. He's with the Lord now. But I remember hearing Curtis Vaughn, when he read that first verse, and he was reading out of a, another translation, an older translation, and it said this, and yours may say this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. ESV says Paul, a servant. And I remember Curtis Vaughn, when he got to that, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, just started belly laughing. He said, that sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It sounds like Paul's somebody who took out a loan or a bond or something, and, and now he's trying to work that off. And as soon as he gets that worked off, he'll be set free from this servanthood that's to Jesus Christ. And, and it, it's our way of kind of softening the blow, I think, in our translations of what Paul is saying. It's our way of kind of saying, you know, it just really sounds a little nicer to say bondservant because we have, we've got a history in this country, I recognize, where the word that Paul actually uses here has a very negative connotation has a horrible connotation has a satanic connotation if you will but we can't interpret it in light of the sin of this nation we have to interpret it in light of what Paul is saying so let me just start out by saying what Paul says here is not uh, very syrupy sweet I'm a bond servant of Christ or I'm a servant of Jesus Christ as though I just kind of chose to do this but he said Paul a doulos of Jesus Christ Doulos is the word he uses there in the Greek. And the word doulos is the word for slave. He said, I, Paul, me, the one writing you here, I want you to understand from the very beginning, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, and I'm called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel of God. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave to him because he has bought me. He has purchased me. I belong to him. He has full authority and full consequence over my life. Not just my spiritual life, not just my thought life, but every part of me, my physical life, my spiritual life, my thought life, everything about me, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a believer, a believer in what Christ has done and accomplished, has to say that very thing. I've been bought, purchased, paid for. I'm not my own, but I belong to him. So, so Paul says, I'm a, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about slavery a lot more as we look at this book. And we'll define that a little more. This is just to introduce it. 
Second thing he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Now, his twofold designation there kind of gives, uh, if you will, a striking contrast. Because when he says, I'm a slave, it's a title of great humility. Nobody wanted to be a slave, necessarily. Nobody went out and said, hey, I think I'll, I think I'll go find somebody who will, I, I can be a slave to, who can be my master. I'm going to go find somebody who can have total control and total ownership over my life. People just don't do that. To be a slave is a humiliating place. It's a humbling place. And, and so Paul starts out by saying that, that I, am, I am a slave. And, and, and so I have this sense of personal insignificance uh, I have no rights of my own. I've been purchased and belong to Christ. I can't claim rights. I can't claim significance in the way our culture and our world wants to talk about significance. Because my significance is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle, on the other hand, is a word that, that expresses his sense of, of authority. Great authority. He says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus, but I'm called, by, uh, I'm called to be an apostle. And in calling to be an apostle, I am set apart from the gospel of, for the gospel of God. And being set apart for the gospel, Paul is saying, this is something that was done to me and was done for me. He makes it clear in, in the book of Acts. And in the book of Galatians that you're studying in Sunday school now, that, that I, didn't, I didn't get this apostleship from, from James or Peter or any of the other apostles. I didn't get this apostleship because I applied for it. You know, I, there was a long vetting process, and, and I filled out the application, and I said, hey, could I become an apostle and, and be one of you guys? I, I've, been a, I've been a Pharisee, and I've been a Jew, and I've been, I've been you know, just doing the hilt to the law. I've been doing everything right. But now you know, I'd, like, I'd like to leave all that behind me, and I'd really like to put in my application to be an apostle. Could you help me here? That's not what happened. On the Damascus Road, when Jesus Christ appeared to him and struck him blind, and, and Paul cried, and he said, why are you Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he cried out with a loud voice, who are you? Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm, I'm Jesus Christ, the one that you are persecuting. And then the process set in where he was blinded, and he went into town, and, and after a time, the scales fell off, and he saw literally, with apologies to Hank Williams, he saw the light. He saw the true light. He, he saw the light of God shining in his heart, that diffusing ray of light. And the chains fell off. The scales fell off. So it, it's, a, it's a point of great authority. It even expresses a sense of, of official privilege and dignus, dignity by reason of the appointment of Jesus Christ, not by his own doing. Slave is a, is a general term. That he uses there. It's, it's a slave. Uh, being a slave is, is for all believers, for all disciples of Jesus Christ. We all should say, as I said, that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He bought me. He paid for me. I am his in totality. Apostle is a very specific term limited only to a few who saw the ministry of the Lord, were called specifically face-to-face -face by the Lord, those 11 that were with him his whole life ministry, and, and then the Apostle Paul who himself says, I'm not, as one out of season or out of time, I'm now made an apostle not by my own help, not by my own work, but by him, set apart by him. 
and even James and a few others that were called apostles in the early church. But that is something that is no longer to be a part. But he was set apart for the gospel of God. The verb that he uses there, set apart, and I'm, I'm not going to get technical with you in, in the Greek because I would slaughter the pronunciation, I'm, I'd be honest, but, but the word that he uses there for set apart has the same root meaning as the word Pharisee. Same root. It comes from set apart. He says, I have been set apart by Christ, by God, for the gospel of God. And, and I don't know if Paul's intending to have a play on words there or not, but it certainly fits that, that as, a, as a Pharisee, Paul set himself apart. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3. He said, listen, I had everything, man. I had the birthright, but I had the religious works too. I had a works righteousness that no one could match. I set myself apart by doing my best to obey the law, by trying my best to be a good person or whatever. And then he says, but when I saw Christ on that Damascus road, and when I, when I was touched by his diffusing light, all of that became like dung, garbage, waste material. It just vanished. Paul set himself apart as a Pharisee. But now he says, I want you to understand, God has set me apart for his gospel. For his gospel. This is not my work. It's the work of Almighty God. And I, I think in Paul's own mind, he, he's likely seeing a parallel between his consecration to be an apostle. You remember what he said to the Galatian Christians? You had not got there yet, I don't think, in your studies. But he says, you know, who called me from, uh, from my mother's womb before I was born, he purposed for me to be an apostle. And, and Jeremiah's thinking when he said, I was, I was called before I was born. I think Paul sees that, that beautiful par parallel that God's purpose, God's plan is forever at work. And now it has shown itself in my life in such a clear way. And so I, I think we have to say we cannot separate these two ideas, these, these two descriptions, these expressions, call to be an apostle and also a slave of Christ set apart. They belong together. Because God gave him the ministry, God called him to the ministry, and then God directed his life as his master, as his Lord. What an amazing thing that, that we spend a lot of time using the word Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is Lord. We sing songs, he is Lord. We sing songs about how he reigns and he rules and he's in control. And yet, in our own life, we fret and worry and, and wonder so much when the reality is to be a Christian is to confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. The very things Paul is dealing with in this passage. I, I want you to understand, Paul is showing in that first verse the origin of the gospel it's the gospel of God 
Paul is showing in these first seven verses, which we'll come back and look at piece by piece by piece over the next couple of weeks. Paul is showing in that those first seven verses that the subject of this book is not him, and it's not it's not you know power of positive thinking, and it's not seven steps to get better in your marriage or seven steps to, to, to raise your kids right or anything else. That's not the purpose. The purpose of this and the subject of this and the goal of this book and the focus of this book is God and His gospel. That we as believers profess that we believe. And so Paul is going to unpack this for us and going to show us the beauty of the glory of God. I, I love how Dr. Leon Morris, who's written a lot on the atonement, he did, some, did a commentary on Romans uh, from Australia. Dr. Leon Morris made this statement. He said, Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Paul wants us to be God-focused as we study this. Paul wants us to be centered in Christ and His atoning work and seeing who we are outside of Christ, who we are in Adam, and who we are in Christ. And so through this, you look at it just in verse 1, he says the gospel of God. talks about how He promised, that is God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of, of his, name above all the, his name above all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I was doing this while I was reading it, but I think I counted references to God in those first seven verses about nine or ten times. You can go back and count it and correct me later. But I think at least nine or ten times. There's the focus. Paul wants us in Romans to do exactly what we're talking about this year in our worship time. He wants us to learn to live Coram Deo. He wants us to see the glory that is living in the presence of God, living before the face of God. There's great glory there. There's great peace there. There is great confidence there. There is great forgiveness there. There is true righteousness there. And I can go on and on and on and on. There is the destruction of sin there. And, and as we are living Coram Deo in the presence of God, before the face of God, under the authority of His Word, it changes our life. We, a group of us spent Friday night back in the youth room with, with the secret church uh, presentation. And, and we talked all night about the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. 
I, I love how Luther said, listen, this book ought to be digested. It ought to be meditated on. It ought to be focused on. It ought to be read over word by word. You ought to know it word by word, even memorize it. Because this book gives you the central core of Christianity. A central core that, if you listen, will explain a lot about the world in which we live and why it is as it is, and a lot about the struggles in your own life that you have. And, and while it's not a self-help book, it will give you solutions to, a lot of, to all those struggles if you learn that it's in the presence of God, under the authority of God and His Word, and living quorum Deo to the glory of God. See, it's sad to say and it's sad to see that in our churches in the 20th, 21st century, we do still live a lot, cor- not quorum Deo, but self, uh, quorum self. We live in our own presence. It's all about us. It's all about what I can do or can't do. It's all about what I can try to accomplish. I mean, it it, it goes on and on and on. It's all about what I want. And Paul is going to show us that as he is a slave to Christ, as he is a doulos to Jesus Christ, so we are too if we are in Christ. So as we take this journey, as we walk through this book, my prayer for my life, not for your life first, for my life first, that I would pray and ask that you would make the prayer for your life, I'm going to say, God, would you break down and pluck up and destroy all fleshly wisdom and all fleshly righteousness, self-righteousness? Would you break down, pluck up, and destroy all self-sufficiency? And let me see that my only way to find sufficiency, and only way to find joy, and only way to find real meaning in life is in my Lord. One of the great truths of Romans is going to be justification by faith alone. Standing right in the presence of God by faith. But as we'll see next week, It is by faith alone, but it's never faith alone. It always issues forth in a change of life. So I'm praying. I don't do this just to preach to you. I know sometimes you think I do. But I don't do this just to preach to you. I do this to to first preach it to me. And, And so my prayer as we look at Romans is, Lord, break down. Pluck up, destroy anything in me that is not to your glory. And I ask you to pray that same thing. Let's pray together.